morning coffee or tea is like the fuel that we need for our minds to engage well. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians in the New Testament, um, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 21, and we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 9. And so if you'll um, just be mindful of that you're going to go over the chapter heading, but also that this starts at verse 21, and that's important. If we start at verse 22, for one, that breaks up a sentence, and this passage just needs to start with verse 21 to remind us that this is mutual. Ephesians 5, 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. This is the household code section of Ephesians. Now, this presents a certain common problem when we come to this part of Ephesians. Often, we can decide that these are for someone else and not for us. But I would ask, as we read scripture today, as we come to God's word, the simple question is, well, who are these words for? These words are for all of us. And yet when we start to read about husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters, it would be easy for us to say, well, that one doesn't apply to me. Well, that one doesn't count for me. That one's for someone else. If we read narrowly and too prescriptively, we might miss the point and fall short of the more important ethic by which we read scripture which is that all of Scripture is for all of us. So maybe if you were single, it'd be easy to say, well, this is about husbands and wives. This doesn't mean anything for me. Moving on, spacing out, finding some coffee or a peppermint for this moment. But rather, if we pay attention well, we remember as we read Scripture that all of it is for all of us whether we are married or single or divorced, whether we have children or not, uh, none of us are slaveholders or um, slaves ourselves, but we might have employers or employees. All of these are for all of us because there's something important that we learn, especially if we think about what the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus and how it relates to us, to remind us that every section is for us because we all are all learning from God what God expects in relationships of all different kinds. And what, when we learn together what God expects of us or of that married couple or of those parents or of that children, when we learn about God's expectations, we learn what reflects God's character. And so all of this is applicable to us. All of it matters and is for us because in it we learn about God's character and we understand more deeply who God is by understanding what God expects of us and of those around us. So in just a moment we'll pray and then we'll read the scriptures together and keep an eye out, not just for the things that you can say, oh, that's me, but what does it mean for all of us? And what do we learn about God in what God expects of all different relationships in the household? Let's pray for the blessing of God's word. Holy Spirit, be like fresh fuel in our hearts, that you may strengthen us, that you may open our minds, our hearts, that you may break down our resistance or our grumblings, that you may speak to us through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So from the words that are spoken, 
and from the ways in which you speak most intimately and most directly into our souls. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us that we may follow you and hear you and know you better each day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was an ancient Greek writer named Thucydides, who gives us the history of what was known as the Peloponnesian Wars. The Peloponnesian Wars were primarily fought between Athens and Sparta because Athenians, despite claiming to be very wise, decided that it would be a great idea to pick a fight with the Spartans, who were known for, well, being incredible warriors. Not a wise move. But of all of the, the years that this transpired, Thucydides writes some of the history of what happened between Athens and Sparta and other areas of Greece affected by this turmoil and war. 
If you've watched a movie or two, the Peloponnesian Wars took place right after the Persian Wars, of which the movie 300 and its corresponding graphic novel written about. But aside from other historic inaccuracies of that period, the Peloponnesian Wars was the civil war of Greece in the ancient world, taking place a few hundred years, a few centuries, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There's an interesting part well, I think it's all interesting. There's a particularly interesting part to Thucydides' writing of the Peloponnesian Wars. And it's chapter 5. It's called the Melian Dialogue. Because the Melians were the residents of an island called Melos. And the Athenians, in flexing their military might, decided that they would take over the island of Melos, even though Melos was neutral. Melos had no interest in the Peloponnesian Wars. They did not take sides. They wanted to go the route of future Switzerland and stay neutral to the whole conflict. We're an island. We're over here. Leave us alone. But the Athenians decided to take over Melos anyway. And Thucydides offers what's called the Melian Dialogue, where the Athenians and the Melians, before the war began for the island of Melos, they argue about the case and cause of what's about to happen. And of course, the Melians say, this is morally unjust. This is not right. You are flexing your power over us. We have no part in it. No one will respect you for this. To which the Athenians said, sorry, we're in charge. You got a good navy? No, you don't. We have an amazing navy. We're going to take you over. And so they went back and forth for a while. But what can be called the Peloponnesian principle in chapter 5 of Thucydides' work on the Peloponnesian Wars is finally the Athenians' response to all of the arguments that the Melians made was this. The strong will do what they want and the weak will suffer what they must. The strong will do what they want, what they will, what they can, and the weak will suffer what they must. They'll deal with it because that's their lot in life. Fascinating to think that the Melians could have argued that their case was just. And in fact, they did, and the Melians argued that they will have the assistance of the gods because their position is morally just. And the Athenians, holding tight to the Peloponnesian principle, counter that the gods will not intervene because it is the natural order of things for the strong to dominate the weak. The Peloponnesian principle is might makes right. The strong will do what they want, what they can, what they will, and the weak will suffer what they must. This is the culture that permeates the Greco-Roman world, Greece and Rome. This is the principal understanding of how power dynamics work, that in any relationship, whether it be in the home or at the national level, the Peloponnesian principle is the philosophic understanding of how things are meant to work. And the Greeks would argue that it was blessed by the gods for the strong to dominate the weak. When we understand and put ourselves in the, the first church in Ephesus that Paul is writing this letter to, when we think about the culture that they lived in, that makes what Paul is writing absolutely radical. Because he is saying power dynamics exist. There is 
is differentials of power in this world. There are those who are stronger or wealthier or more influential, and there are those who are weaker or more vulnerable. Paul is not arguing that. He knows full well that there are stronger and weaker parties on this earth. What he is saying is, hey, guess what? Greco-Roman world, you've gotten this wrong for centuries, and you have made it worse over time you have misunderstood and misappropriated what power is meant for. And you say that your gods bless this principle of might makes right. And Paul now counters at this point in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, making his case that the one true God, the Lord of the cosmos, the creator of the universe, and the Savior who died upon the cross, that one God looks at your Peloponnesian principle and says, wrong false. You missed the mark. The contrast of the Greco-Roman world with the fact that the creator of the universe, omnipotent, all-powerful God, would be born in a stable in Bethlehem and would die upon a cross, naked and humiliated, scourged and whipped, that that could even happen, flies in the face of all of the cultural understanding that the Greek world had. Paul offers something completely different, saying power dynamics exist, but what you're using power for or the posture you take if you are the weaker party has been misunderstood. And in a radical move to the church in Ephesus, he writes, to set things right. God has given up God's self for us. This reframes and helps us re-understand for all of us, regardless of marital or parental status, what this groundbreaking move means. Because if, if we break down how the household codes worked, um, men were dominant, and in many ways, women were property in this day and age. And so for Paul to urge so strongly to make the connection that as Christ loved the church, that's how husbands are supposed to love their wives. That is different. This is, in a, day, this is a day of arranged marriages. These are not marriages of romance. These are arranged marriages, often for political gain. And the expectations is for women and wives to have an heir. And yet, here comes the Apostle Paul saying that's not, that's not how God intends for relationships to be. In the Greco-Roman world, if you were a husband, father, slaveholder, all kind of the, the top power things, you can do whatever you want because everyone around you is essentially property. Husbands at North Holland, modern day, your wife is not property. If you think so, she does not respect you because you're probably an idiot and you're just wrong. No one is property. And in fact, this is no longer, I can do what I want because I'm in charge. Now we are introducing self-sacrificing love. It's not that you have all the power to do what you want. It's that you have all the power that you can die for those who are weaker than you. You have the authority to protect, to love, and to cherish those around you. As Eugene Peterson translates this passage of Ephesians in the message, he says, Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, 
A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. Now, similarly for wives, for women, for for anyone who um, was of a lower social class, it it is probably hard for us to imagine, although I'm reminded sometimes by, I would lovingly call our senior saints of North Holland, that there was a time where you couldn't have opened, women could not have opened their checkbook without um, a man's permission. But yet, it is still hard for us to wrap our minds around what the Greco-Roman world of Ephesians was like. But Paul is curving that too for those of lesser power. Not saying the power dynamics don't exist. They do. And there should be power between parents and children. Every time I leave my kids with someone, I always have to say, who's in charge while I'm gone? Because they're not in charge. Though children have imagination and delusions of grandeur of being in charge. But, but wives are told Instead of the Peloponnesian principle of, ah, suffer what you must, you probably got married into a family you didn't really want to. Your life is, well, not what you wish it was. And so there could be a kind of sabotage. There could be a bitterness and a cynicism. Because this is not the days of romantic marriage and love. This is not Romeo and Juliet. This is, at the wedding, who gives this woman to this man? This is a property exchange, not a blessing of love. And Paul writes, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Meaning, not some grouchy, grumpy overlord. And he says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. To submit is to support in mission. To, to lift from beneath. And after Aaron's done with music, she can explain more Greek to you than I can, but maybe. Um, but to, is to support. Women of this day and age might not have liked their lot in life very much, and you can imagine why. And yet what Paul is saying is, you know what? Instead of going through life being disappointed at your situation, work for the good of the household of which you were a part. Maybe you wish you got married off to a wealthier family. Maybe you wish that you got married to that person who seems a lot nicer than your husband. What Paul offers instead in submit is not to be domineered because he doesn't leave any room for that with how the husbands are supposed to act, but rather to support and to build up and bless the household of which you are a part. This came up somewhere else in the Old Testament. If you remember your Old Testament history, the people of God were not faithful and eventually they got brought into, they were in slavery from Egypt into the promised land and then eventually taken over by Assyria and Babylon. And I know this seems kind of history heavy today, but, but, but just bear with me on how this all fits together. When the people were in captivity in Assyria and Babylon, God's prophets did not tell the people to rebel and to be, make their lives miserable and to try to bring down Babylon from the inside. Let's sabotage Assyria from the capital, work our way out. Rather, what the prophets, like Isaiah and spe specifically Jeremiah, said was to work for the good of the city of which you are in. Work for its betterment that it may also be well with you. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you and to give you a good future. This is written in exile. 
This is written to people who have been dominated and conquered. And the prophets, speaking the word of God, tell the people, this land that you're in, bless it. Build it up. Work for the good of those around you, knowing that those who are over you in an earthly sense, they are still under your sovereign Lord. Build up those around you. So instead of suffer what you must, work for those around you. Build up your house. Make it a place of goodness. Now there are ways in which we could, we could qualify and asterisk this to death in trying to maybe see, well, how does that work today? Or this, that, or the other. But the core principle that all of us need to read within this is that the Peloponnesian principle was being attacked in what Paul wrote. And if you remember in Acts, Paul didn't have a very good time in Ephesus. He was a troublemaker because he's shaking things up. And when he is telling men who are powerful that, well, no, your power is to serve. And when he's telling women and slaves who maybe don't like their lot in life, maybe they've actually found the most satisfaction in sabotaging those around them. There's some horrific historic anecdotes of that. Saying, work for the good of the city. This has always been God's understanding of if you are to serve, you will serve with a sincere heart in the best ways that you can. And if you're the one with power and control and authority, don't get too big for your britches, people, because it is the Lord and the Lord alone who is sovereign over all. Husbands and wives, the ways in which they are supposed to interact are rewritten. Parents and children, children, obey your parents. Yes, please, do. Especially while mom's in Alaska. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But honor your father and mother. Honor, give weight to. Give weight to what they say. Make their words heavy in your heart in a good way, that they anchor you, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. We might say, well, if I'm an adult now, this doesn't apply to me. But does honor have an age requirement or expiration? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Hmm. I don't know if that needs any translating. I think that just transfers 2,000 years later. Don't exasperate your children. I actually really like um, the way that Eugene Peterson writes this in the message. Fathers, don't frustrate your children with no-win scenarios. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Don't frustrate them with no-win scenarios. Take them by the hand. Once again, the power differential is still there, but it's transformed and redeemed. Instead of fathers, obey your kid, order your kids around that they obey you, fathers, take them by the hand and lead them. People in authority, use what you have to bless and to build up and to protect and those who are of less power, don't sabotage. You could spend your life being bitter and cynical about the hand that you've been dealt, but that will deprive you of the joy of working for the good of the city that you are in. How does it work for all of us? That we can all identify relationships in which we have the upper hand of power, of authority, 
and we can identify relationships where we are subordinate to someone else. All of us are subordinate to God. But between employers and employees, parents, children, brothers, sisters, family members, power dynamics still exist, but what they're for is radically different in scripture than in the rest of the world. Uh, historian and writer Tom Holland, not to be confused with the Tom Holland who plays Spider-Man, a different, a very different Tom Holland, writes, and a, as a secular historian, notes that in the Greco-Roman world, this idea that anyone would have implicit dignity is foreign. And that came from the Judeo-Christian roots. The Jews in the Old Testament who were working for the good of Babylon. Christians in the New Testament who saw each and every person as created in the image of God. This idea that all of us have some implicit human dignity was a radical new concept. And it came not from Greece or from Rome. It came from the scriptures and it came from Jesus. God did not decide to wash his hands of us, but he took us by the hand and offered his hands to be crucified for us. So what does this mean for all of us? One, we learn something about God's character in paying attention to these words well. We also take some comfort. When we feel that we have been treated wrongly, there is some comfort in, remi in reminding ourselves of who is the true master, even when someone seems to have mastered us and taken advantage of us or treated us unfairly. Similarly, we do well to note what God intends power for, and that as the Lord has giveth and the Lord will taketh away, be careful of how you use your power and authority, and also, for all that is holy, don't neglect or not be aware of the power and authority that you do have, and don't take for granted how you should use it and how you shouldn't. These words speak to all of us in what they teach us about God. And as we walk away from today, as we go into our week, maybe pay attention. I like to jot things down on scrap paper. It helps me remember. What are some relationships where you are the upper hand? Will you take by the hand those who are of less power than you? And how do you want to think about and talk about behind their back and treat those who are in more authority over you? How do you like to talk about your boss when they're not there, especially with your coworkers? Doesn't it feel kind of good to gain some points if we all like grouch a little bit about how horrible that person is? Paul says, no, enough of that. That's not mature. It's not what you're meant for, and it's not what this relationship is meant for. The Peloponnesian principle. The strong will do what they can, and the weak will suffer what they must. Take that, melos is replaced now by the Christian principle that the strong will do what they can to lift the weak, to protect the vulnerable, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to dignify each and every person who is created in the image of God, which is every person, and the weak. And the weak will do what they, they will suffer what they must. The weak will do what they can to serve the interests of those around them, to the best of their ability. And parents, children are told to obey in the Lord, not to follow down an amoral path. 
but to obey within the Lord. Our principles have been replaced with strong and weak for us to be mindful of how we wield authority and how we speak of those and serve those in authority over us. All of this is replacing that which was, that which was the invention of human mind, specifically written by those who were in power, and replaced instead by Jesus. By Jesus, who could heal with a word from his mouth. By Jesus, who could feed multitudes with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. By Jesus, who could raise the dead. By that same Lord who showed us what power was really for is to love and to serve those who need us. Friends, rewrite the principles of your household and your culture, knowing how God intends for us to relate to and with one another, all under the canopy of his amazing grace. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of history of the story of the human race, of the things that are marvelous and the things that needed to be improved on. God, we thank you that above all of this, you have shown us your intentions for the world, for shalom, for peace, for the well-being of all. We pray that you take these words that we have read today for husbands and wives, for slaves and masters, for children and parents, and that we may see not only what is prescriptive for parents not to exasperate their children, but also that we may understand and bring depth to all of the relationships that we have. Power dynamics can exist even for our safety and well-being, that parents may take care of their children and bless them and keep them. Lord, we come to you asking us, asking you to build within our hearts a humility for those who have earthly authority over us, knowing that they also have a master over them, which is you. And to bring out the best in those around us, and especially here in, in this part of the world where we have such privilege, such authority, to use what we have for the betterment and dignity of all. And this we do, not just as a new humanitarian understanding, but this we do in your name, with your love in our hearts and your gospel professed on our lips. Jesus, we thank you that your power was used to save us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.